We return to bringing light into darkness in the discussion of the February 2014 U.S. engineered coup that is completely ignored by the mainstream media narrative. Further proof that this was a U.S. orchestrated coup was the, the taped phone call of Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary of State, with Jeffrey Piat, the ambassador to Ukraine on behalf of the United States. And basically, the taped interview indicates who they were picking to succeed the government once it was cooed out. We have detailed on other shows, one with Dean Knight, back on January 31st, 2022, about the choices that Yanukovych had between the European Union and the Russian aid package that precipitated the coup. Yanukovych was leaning heavily towards the EU package, but then as a matter of economics, a much more substantial and less costly aid package with more benefits and less strings attached was offered by Russia, and he accepted it. This is what generated the coup. It was not just a bunch of demonstrators from the West thinking that we should go to the EU. It turns out, just as we saw in Chile that we just went over, and just common to our Guatemalan experience as well, in 2013, December 13th of 2013, an address by Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland at the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation laid it out. She laid it out. She said, since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote participation in good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. Where did they get that money and training that she speaks to? She says, we have invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. This promoting democracy rhetoric is reassuring to most Americans, but most of this $5 billion comes from institutions connected to the United States, such as the NED that Weinstein, the original NED director, characterized as doing the business that the CIA used to do covertly. Arguably, this is more accurately described as sovereignty busting than Newland's words of promoting democracy. We just went through how in Chile we own the, the press, the labor movements, we donated to political parties. The same thing in these countries. We completely infiltrate civil society and shape it in a vision, not that is best for them, but is best for us. This is what a color revolution is called. And then when we have this interest that we say, look, Ukraine is an independent country. They have the sovereignty to make a choice of whether they're going to go with NATO or not. That's not up for Russia to decide. But in fact, the sovereign decision that they made was to go with Russia. And that sovereign government that made that sovereign decision was cooed out by the United States. So we put in an undemocratic government that then we say is the sovereign government of Ukraine because it's the one that we put in power. They listen to us. It's not a sovereign choice. It's our choice or a choice highly influenced by us. Moreover, what's left out of that argument about a sovereign choice about joining NATO or not are treaties that guarantee that every nation has the right to national security. So if a decision is being made by a third country that jeopardizes the national security of another country, that's a violation of international law. That is not even mentioned in the debate that we're having about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of all of the actions that the Russians have taken. I'm not endorsing the invasion of the Ukraine. What we are trying to do with this show is to indicate some of the information that just has never made it to any of our mainstream medias and therefore has never made it to the American public. Therefore, we are operating on judging Russia with a profound ignorance of some of the main drivers. Let me end this segment with this reflection. 
This show is airing on Co-op Radio on March the 21st, 2022. That is 57 years and one month after the assassination of Malcolm X. And it is Malcolm X that saw so clearly and warned us that those in power are masters of manipulating information and opinions away from the truth of the matter. In fact, he said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Recent polling by AP shows that over 80% of the U.S. public feels that Ukraine was aggressively invaded without cause. At the same time, over 70% of the people in Russia support President Putin and his actions in Ukraine. Somebody is being strayed way farther from the truth than the other. And we should have the humility, as Dr. King has taught us, to consider that it may be us. At this point, what I'd like to do is pivot to our very special guest, Alan Pogue, and our conversation of just a couple of days ago. First of all, I want to welcome a friend and colleague, Alan Pogue, back to bringing light into darkness. Today is March the 15th. We are pre-taping a segment for our show that will be airing on March the 21st from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm bringing light into darkness on 91.7 koop.org. In 1966, Alan Pogue volunteered to be a medic, and he later volunteered to go to Vietnam as a chaplain's assistant. And then in Vietnam, he volunteered to be a combat medic. So we speak with someone that has great acumen in what war means. He's also known for his work on behalf of farm workers' rights and prison reform. Importantly for our discussion today, he has been to Iraq four or five times. It is in that vein that I welcome Alan Pogue back to bringing light into darkness. Welcome, Alan. Well, I'm glad to be here. And yes, I was in Iraq five different times, always at the invitation of peace groups. First, the American Friends Service Committee, which is the Quakers, working with Voices in the Wilderness, uh, Kathy Kelly, an anti-sanctions group, and then with Veterans for Peace, of which I am a member and former board member. We spent over $100,000 rebuilding a water treatment plant in far southern Iraq, south of Basra. So I I know firsthand with hands-on experience, both helping to rebuild that water treatment plant and also visiting many, many hospitals all over Iraq from Mosul in the north to Basra in the south and saw firsthand the effects of sanctions on the ability of doctors to do anything to help their own people. And that's really what we want to focus our attention on, Alan. Let me do a short introduction for our audience. We've just heard about how U.S. foreign policy is complicit, not with the interests of the average U.S. citizen, but with the interests of multinational corporations. Examples that we use were United Fruit Company and the infiltration of the interests of big business into government positions that then usurp government policy and foreign policy in order to overthrow governments that might threaten profitability of these interests. And with that in mind, I think it speaks to the larger motivation for U.S. foreign policy, unfortunately, not to bring democracy to the rest of the world, but to make the rest of the world more profitable for the U.S. investment and the wealth disparities that we find in the world today. So I wanted to go back and suggest that right now, credible reports from the ground in Ukraine and outcomes since the February 24th, 2022 Russian invasion indicated that Russian intentions were to do what they could to protect civilian infrastructure and civilian lives. 
no doubt way too many civilians have died. And that's always the case in war. But the main strikes that were carried out by the Russian troops has been against military infrastructure located on territory occupied by the Ukrainian army. And importantly, Russian weapons are prioritizing caution to minimize these casualties. This is what I've discovered through credible reports. However, the point here is that we are being told in the United States that Russians are indiscriminately killing civilians and really want to suggest that, once again, the misrepresentations of the truth are clouding what most Americans need to know. And the purpose of bringing light into darkness is to bring this other perspective. There were some 15 to 18,000 deaths in the Donbass area of civilian and military fighters in response to these huge civilian deaths was one of the reasons, according to President Putin, the Russian invasion occurred. Others were intimately tied to national security interests that we've discussed on other shows. But the point here is not to suggest that two wrongs make a right, but it's rather to indicate without doubt, based on the abundance of documentation, the U.S. policy in Iraq when it comes to civilians and protecting civilians was to negligently, akin to criminally negligence, that there was a profound disregard for civilian life by targeting electrical, oil, energy, refineries, and water treatment plants, not as collateral damage, but as a matter of intent. And your familiarity, not with just being there, but also with Dr. Nagy's report and declassification of important documents that point to that intent is what I was hoping you could summarize for us. So please share with us what Nagy's findings were. And thank you for being our guest here on Bringing Light into Darkness, Alan. Yes, because I'm a member of Veterans for Peace and made presentations on the war in Iraq as I saw it, I was able to meet various people, including Dennis Halliday, who is the director of the UN Humanitarian Mission in Iraq. And I became aware of Dr. Thomas Nagy, a professor of economics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And he uncovered memos, the planning that went into the bombing of Iraq before the war ever started. And the interesting thing is, many of these are not even classified. They're public documents, and anyone who wishes to can download them from the military websites. It isn't like he got something illegally or was slipped some information in the dark of night. No, he just went to the, the website. It's www.golflink.osdmil. M-I-L, military source. What Alan's referring to is a defense intelligence agency, a DIA memo, the subject Iraq water treatment vulnerabilities as of 18 of January 1991, that now is public knowledge. Yes, it isn't even a secret. It's just that, well, who would know where to look? And even after he uncovered it and talked to journalists, he had a difficult time finding people who would write the story. He finally did, and the copy I have was published in The Progressive magazine, so you can search that on the Progressive website, The Secret Behind the Sanctions, How the U.S. Intentionally Destroyed Iraq's Water Supply. And all of this information is originally given to us by the military itself. So there you have it. So before Saddam Hussein's army invaded Kuwait, the war on Iraq was already well planned out. And they had targeted 400 places they intended to bomb once it started. 
So this whole attack on the Iraqi civilian infrastructure was planned ahead of time, perhaps a year before anything ever happened, which could have been used as an excuse to implement these plans. And there are several memos, and they're very exact. University professors in the United States were asked to find vulnerabilities in the Iraqi water treatment facilities. And they found that in Iraq, a lot of the water is saline and has other minerals, and it has to be purified. And beyond minerals and, and salt, there are also many biological elements in the water that would produce cholera and other diseases. So the Iraqi population were very vulnerable to massive diarrhea, which would cause dehydration and death, particularly among children and the elderly, but everyone actually. And so the electrical grids and the water treatment facilities were not, you know, I want to be very exact here. I don't want to overstate anything, but I want to say that not necessarily bombing the water facility itself, but once the war fighting was over, there was so much destruction and the ability of the Iraqis to obtain any kind of material to rebuild these facilities was stopped by the sanctions regime. The right. Iraqis could only sell oil on the international market if allowed to by the UN and its sanctions committee. And the United States and Britain systematically denied the Iraqis the ability to buy parts to keep all these water treatment facilities running. They couldn't get filters. They couldn't get chlorine. So let's be clear here. What Alan is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm reading right from the document you mentioned on the Progressive published in September of 2001, the secret behind the sanctions, how the U.S. intentionally destroyed Iraq's water supply by Thomas Nagy that you indicated. His first paragraph, over the last two years, I've discovered documents of the Defense Intelligence Agency proving beyond a doubt that contrary to the Geneva Convention, the U.S. government intentionally used sanctions against Iraq to degrade the country's water supply after the Gulf War. So it was not just the bombings themselves, but it was the sanctions that kept chlorification and other what they would call what dual purpose types of deals from being brought into Iraq that could clean the water. This is famously right what led to the 500,000 deaths of children on the cholera that you were referring to and other waterborne illnesses that Madeleine Albright shrugged off famously. Is that right? Yes. And that's right there on YouTube. Anybody who wants to see it, all you have to do is type in Madeleine Albright 500,000 and she will be asked the question. It is said that more children have died as the result of our bombing of Iraq's infrastructure than were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Do you think, Madam Secretary, that it was worth it? In other words, worth it militarily or politically to kill all these children? And she responds, well, it's difficult to say, but yes, we do believe it was worth it. This is only children five years old and younger. That's the 500,000. Many more people died than that. You know, older children and people of all ages and the elderly died because of the bad water they were forced to drink by the U.S. And Veterans for Peace, the, the group I work with, located a water treatment plant south of Basra, which is in the southern part of Iraq. And we supplied the money that would pay for the parts to rehabilitate this plant. All of the water filtration devices needed to be replaced. And a lot of the electrical system 
They needed the parts. They have the engineers. There are plenty of well-educated scientists and engineers in Iraq. They just needed the parts to make the water treatment facility work. And we were able to do that. And I photographed the plant when it was in an utter state of disrepair and shutdown. And then I went back to Iraq and photographed it once it had been repaired and could deliver water to 40,000 people. And we also were able to supply enough spare parts so they could keep this thing running for 10 years. And I'm very proud of that. We did everything that we could, and we tried to be an example that this, this is what was necessary. Yeah, the document actually says, and I'm quoting it, Iraq will suffer increasing shortages of purified water because of the lack of required chemicals and desalination membranes. Instances yeah. of disease, including possible epidemics will become probable unless the population were careful to boil their water. Yes. And, you know, everybody couldn't do that. I mean, people in Austin here in particular remember a year ago when our power grid went down and, you know, there was no electricity and then the water was bad. And, and so you had to drink bottled water unless you were able to. I mean, I would, I would like to at least filter it a little bit before I boiled it. Right, right. Well, can you speak, Alan, to specifically the intent to actually target electric grids and these water systems that occurred as part of this U.S. military outcome? Well, there's two parts to it, I think, at least that were written about. One is that the planners, the U.S. planners realized that the Iraqis, without outside help, they could not repair these facilities and these gigantic electrical grids. And so they managed to set it up so that if the Iraqis wanted to have these facilities repaired, they'd have to hire American corporations to do it. So that way, American corporations would be paid to destroy it and American corporations would be paid to repair it. Mm -hmm. Now, the second excuse, which is wildly you know, unbelievable, is that they wanted the Iraqi people to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. Well, they wanted to have it both ways. You know, Saddam Hussein is an absolute dictator who controlled the army. And then the people were supposed to rise up and overthrow him. And they, were, they had no arms. They had no ability to do this. And it's called blaming the victim. They make this wild claim that because some average Iraqi is a citizen of Iraq, they're equally responsible for anything Saddam Hussein does. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like saying that anything Donald Trump said or did is my fault because I'm an American citizen. Well, that's absurd, you know. It's interesting to me, Alan, that apparently to this article that Negi wrote, he indicates that he's come across other DIA documents that actually confirm the Pentagon's monitoring of the degradation of Iraq's water supply, not just destroying it, but knowingly monitoring the degradation. This is clearly a premeditated type of thing. And again, we're having this discussion to just juxtapose the intent of our policy here, as opposed to what's going on in Ukraine as we speak. Yes. So if Putin were acting as the Americans, you know, the United States government did in Iraq, he would be busy bombing the Ukraine's water and wastewater facilities and the electrical infrastructure and any oil producing infrastructure uh, to shut the whole society down, no matter what the result would be. Mm -hmm. If he were to act as the U.S. act. Yes, certainly in Libya, the, the great water system was attacked as well. So this is not an isolated uh, deal. In fact, we've already and you've eloquently indicated that this is captured in documents. It, it shows intent. It's not collateral damage. It's 
It's desired damage. Yes, this is done on purpose in order to injure non-combatants. And, and this is totally against the Geneva Conventions. You know, everything we learned supposedly for World War II. But attacking civilian infrastructure is policy. It's not mistakes. Right. And, and also I have other articles written by, for instance, the Air Force. Strategic Attack Air Force Doctrine document, was it 21.2 May 1998? Evidently, this paper was never classified. One can get it from Maxwell Air Force Base website. And it's saying that Air Force, by bombing electrical power facilities, killed perhaps as many as 100,000 civilians in Iraq and led to the doubling of the infant mortality rate. He says, the author of the, of the document, that this action is not only legal and ethical, but also in conformity with the U.S. Air Force doctrine. He goes on to cite the wrong sections of the Geneva Conventions to justify these actions. Now, this is in Iraq, Alan? Well, the article starts off by talking about Air Force doctrine and policy about bombing of civilian infrastructure. Okay. They're very much in favor of it. In other words, whether it's Iraq or whether it's Syria or whether it's anywhere that we engage, it speaks to and tries to justify in some type of legalese this policy. Yes. You know, and people always have to remember, I think, that slavery was legal in the United States. The Supreme Court of the land said it was legal at one point. So there's a difference between something being legal and being moral or ethical. Mm-hmm. It can be perfectly legal and totally immoral. Right. So they're trying to make this justification for the direct bombing of civilians and all of those things that make civilian life possible. You know, electricity, transportation, the ability to eat, have food, have clean water. All of these things are under attack and it's policy. Let me ask you this, Alan, in the last two or three minutes that we have you. So when you look at what you saw with your eyes, and by the way, Alan Pogue is a documentarist photographer, one of the greatest documentarist photographers of our generation, I might add. And you have this documentation in Iraq, but can you, in the last few minutes, speak to the media coverage or lack of coverage of these atrocities versus what you're seeing now with respect to the claims of the Russian disregard for civilian lives? Well, my personal experience is I was in Iraq in December of 1998, and I photographed the cruise missile attack on Baghdad. I was there on the ground, and I I went to neighborhoods, and I went to hospitals, and I went to a hospital. All of the windows had been blown out. It hadn't been hit directly by a cruise missile, but the cruise missile struck so close to it that there wasn't a window in in the front of this large hospital. And in Austin, you can think of Brackenridge or in any large American city, the largest general hospital in the city. That's what it was in Baghdad. And there wasn't a window that wasn't blown out. And some of these were the huge, thick glass doors in the front of the hospital. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't have to open the door because the glass was all gone. And I photographed one grandmother who had come to visit the hospital and was severely injured by the flying glass. So now she was in a hospital somewhere else. So when I got to Jordan and I was able to download all these photographs, I sent them to the Austin American Statesman and they wouldn't run any of them because it didn't conform to the official story. Mm -hmm. The official story was we didn't hurt civilians, but the truth was we killed children. We killed pregnant women. We killed grocery store clerks with this bombing because you can't drop a cruise missile someplace and not kill people. 
So when the American statesman ran a picture of a hospital that was supposedly hit by a Russian missile, I had a little ironic laugh. I mean, because when I supplied them with my photographs from Baghdad, they wouldn't run them. And I was told by reporters within the American statesman that there was a big debate about it. And what it finally came down to was the editor and the publisher said that I wasn't a real photographer, meaning that I didn't work for Reuters. I didn't work for AP. You know, I didn't work for any big newspaper organization or media corporation. I'm just Alan Pogue there out on my own taking pictures. It's so interesting, Alan, that now they play social media all the time (laughs) off of telephones if it fits the narrative. And and the intention, again, I just wanted to, as we sum things up, I just want to say the point here is not to suggest that two wrongs make a right, but rather to indicate without doubt, based on the abundance of documentation, our policy in Iraq and other places when it came to civilians was akin to criminally negligent homicide, a disregard for civilian life, but just didn't get any coverage by targeting these electrical, oil, energy, refineries, and water treatment plants. Well, the news, yes, the news is a weapon. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to reporters in Haiti, for instance, who said, yeah, we we file stories, but when the story comes out in the newspaper, we don't recognize it as our own because it's been edited Mm -hmm. to produce a certain effect. Very good. It has nothing to do with what really happened. Well, listen, Alan, we are out of time, but if people want to access You've got these compelling pictures and analysis of your time in Iraq and such that I think is eminently important for people to be aware of. And how can they access your documentary work? Well, the best way is to go to my website, which is documentary photographs with an S, documentaryphotographs.com. Of course, you can always just Google my name, Alan Pogue, but put photographer. And Alan Pogue is A-L-A-N-P-O-G-U-E, P-O-G-U-E. Yes, Pogue. It's like Vogue, but with a P. Either way, you'll get to my website where I have portfolios of pictures from several countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your personal experience combined with your vast knowledge on issues of of war and peace and social justice. I think this discussion is invaluable. We're out of time, but we'll have to have you back on to further explicate this intention that came with the absolute devastation of water treatment plants, electrical grids. And this is during a time when Dick Cheney was very influential in those policies. And of course, he was connected to Halliburton, one of a number of U.S. corporations that made incredible amounts of money following the 2003 invasion uh, in which we decimated Iraq and tried to privatize through Bremer, through his infamous hundred orders, uh, all of the Iraqi uh, industries in such a way that would promote this profiteering for U.S.-led Western investment and at the direct inverse cost to the majority population interests of the Iraqi people. So thank you so much, Alan. Anytime. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Come